Well, good morning. I know that we're missing uh, quite a few uh, this morning. It may be that you're joining us via the live stream. Uh, thank you for uh, doing that. We're making our way through a series in which we're looking at uh, passages that uh, help to discern the kind of things that we struggle with in this present age and how it is that the second coming of Jesus meets these struggles. The topic this morning is the topic distraction. Distraction. Before I tell you what I mean by distraction, let me address little theologians. If you would uh, please, as I am preaching, draw a picture of instructions on how to tie a bow. Instructions that tell me how to tie a bow. We're looking this morning at another psalm. This is Psalm uh, 86. Uh, you have it in your pew Bibles there also, uh, 494 is the page number, but it's in your, in your bulletin. Uh, let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll look at this psalm together. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your ministry to us in your word. Thank you that we are not left alone, left to our own devices. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that even as we uh, try to find answers in places uh, beyond uh, your character and your revealed will in your word, you are still merciful, kind-hearted, patient. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for speaking to people like us. Do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, Insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is the word of our Lord. In the past five years or so, a number of 
uh, social commentators have uh, called out that we are living in an age that they call a distracted age. There's a number of scholars uh, who have focused in on this. And I wonder if you agree. Do you think that you are living in a distracted age? What is distraction? Distraction is that which seduces us into some kind of an alternative universe, so say these scholars. So uh, things like digital media and movies and games, they seduce us away from reality. Distraction makes us unable to catch what is real, what is relevant, what is permanent. That's what one scholar says. Others say that distraction is related to why many of us feel that we cannot keep our heads above water, that every day is filled with perpetual loose ends. Do you feel that? Every day filled with perpetual loose ends. One researcher by the name of Linda Stone has coined an expression, an expression that I have found repeated over and over again. She has famously said that today many of us live in a state of continuous partial attention. Think about that, continuous partial attention. Another uh, notable uh, scholar on this subject, a psychiatrist Edward Hallowell, says that it is increasingly hard to tell if someone is ADD or if merely they're simply the kind of person who is suffering a case of modern life. A good example of this is that everybody multitasks, but one scholar, David Meyer, a professor of cognitive science, uh, he says that all of the research shows that multitasking is absolutely irrational. All of the research is irrefutable. David Meyer says that multitasking is, to is tolerating a scourge, a scourge that is similar to cigarette smoking. Nobody believes multitasking works. Maggie Jackson says this, and I'll, I'll move on. She says that we have our heads down and we are becoming ever more entranced by the unsifted trivia of life. We are eroding attention, and attention is the most crucial building block of wisdom and memory. We lack the powers of selection and focus, and we're unable to carve knowledge from the vast shifting and ebbing oceans of information that surround us. We are losing the ability to create lives of meaning and cultures marked by reason and vision. We cannot perceptively look back. We cannot perceptively look ahead. That's Maggie Jackson. And what do you think about that? Is any of that true at all, that we live in a distracted age, an age that is so distracting that we are losing our ability to sift through the information and make sense of what is really real? We don't understand our history, and we have no vision for the future. I wonder if any of this, even if just a little bit of this resonates with your life, is it hard for you to pay attention? I want us to understand distraction according to what the word itself actually means. Distraction is a kind of a separating of the mind, a mind that is being uh, pulled apart by trying to run after a variety of things, a mind that is never truly focused, never truly content. 
reflecting upon what one philosopher from, philosopher from the early 1900s uh, says, a scholar says that distraction prevents us from a clear and vivid possessing of the mind. Distraction is the kind of thing that prevents us from actually understanding our mind. The mind in distraction is scattered. It's never able to collect and it's never able to order. Now, can Christianity help us in a distracted age? Well, let me tell you how distracted the age is. We know that even the spiritually mature among us have almost altogether lost the ability to have one personal conversation a day without grabbing their phone and checking out a notification or almost entirely lost the, the ability to describe an event using words rather than searching through your camera roll to produce a picture. Even some spiritually mature among us have lost the ability to ponder an unanswered question for more than 30 seconds before breaking down and Googling it on the spot. Can Christianity help us? in a distracted age? That's the question that I think this psalm uh, gives us a glimpse of in terms of an answer. This is a psalm you know that's actually a prayer. It shows us about the prayer life of David. And I believe that David in his prayer is revealing what it looks like for someone who is distracted to appeal to God for help. He asks God to do something that is critical to those who are living in a distracted age. And what this psalm tells us, what I hope to show you this morning, is that God is willing and able to unite scattered minds and hearts if we will only ask him. He is willing and able to unite your scattered heart and my scattered heart. Will we ask him? I want to begin uh, looking at this passage by just providing a brief introduction to how poetry works. And then we'll move from that to look at the beginning and the end of this psalm. And then I think right in the center of the psalm is the conclusion. And so that's the third part of my sermon at the very middle of this psalm. But first, uh, let's uh, go back in time to uh, an English class in high school, uh, as painful as that might be. Uh, all psalms are lyric poetry, and, and lyric poems are poems that are unified around a central idea. There's variations on that idea over the course of the psalm, but lyric poetry has a central idea, and the central idea of this poem is the character of God to answer prayer. There's much about the character of God, and it's the very context of a prayer. So in addition to all other characteristics of God, this poem is telling us that he's a God whom we can go to in prayer. Now, lyric poems, they don't usually tell a story, but they stem from life experiences. Leland Ryken says that lyric poems are usually uh, about feelings that have come out of life experiences, raw sensations, or they're about some kind of philosophical, theological reflection upon life experiences. Let's think about that. Lee Ryken says that every psalm in the Bible, there's 150 of them, every psalm is either uh, raw feelings or sensations that come out of lived experiences or uh, philosophical uh, reflections, theological reflections upon 
those life experiences. And, and here we have a poem in which the poet is reflecting upon a life experience. You and I don't get to discern that life experience until verse 14 of the psalm, near the end. We'll, we'll get there. But the poet of a lyric poem uh, has some kind of struggle, and they're reflecting upon that struggle, and that's what David is doing here. Uh, all lyric poems have structure, an introduction, a development in the middle, and then a conclusion. Uh, the things in a poem, the lyric poems, they don't always flow chronologically, uh, not like the events of a story. C.S. Lewis says that the connecting points of lyric poetry is that the three parts of the poem are connected emotionally rather than logically. There's some kind of an emotional uh, heart tug that brings all of the three parts of a lyric poem together. But one thing that's very important is that in lyric poetry, the middle bit is always important. And that's usually where the meat of the poem is. That's why I'm concluding at the middle. Uh, for our poem, the flow begins in verses uh, 1 to 7. In those uh, opening verses, uh, it's all about the poet's relationship with God. You can uh, hear, witness the poet uh, speaking to God confidently in verses 1 through 7. The poet loves the fact that he can talk to God. And then the next section of our poem, verses 8 through 13, is all about the character of God. The poet uh, somewhat disappears behind the grandeur of God in this middle section of the poem. That's really important. Again, we'll, we'll conclude there. This is where the meat is. And the very end of our poem, verses 14 through 17, this really is the poet's main problem. Only at the very end does he tell us what he's struggling with, and that's 14 through 17. But as I promised, let's begin with the uh, introduction, 1 through 7, and the uh, very end of the poem, 14 through 17. We'll look at these bookends first before we make our way to the conclusion in the middle. I would ask you as we look at the opening section of this poem, I would ask you how you want to be known by others. How would you like others to remember you? The words that you would like on your gravestone? Successful, moral, funny, good-looking? No one's going to admit that. But in, in this opening section, verses 1 through 7, uh, this poet, he seems to, be, to, to want to be known by just two things. The first is that he has a relationship with God, and the second is that that relationship is the source of all of his wholeness and all of his gladness. Those are the two things he wants to be known by. First, he wants to be known as someone who's in communion with God. I mean, look, look how the poem opens up. The poem opens up by us uh, catching uh, a discussion that's happening. The poet says, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. I mean, look in verses 1 through 7, how often he calls on God or admits that he calls on God. Almost every verse, in fact, I think every verse, if you look closely enough, says something about his call to God, calling God, crying out to him, praying to him, uh, pleading to him, lifting his soul to him. It's everywhere in this opening section. Look how frequently he's engaged in this. Do you see in verse 3 there the frequency? All the day, all the day. He's in dialogue with God. He's a man in communion with God. 
Not only is he in communion with God, but look how humble he is. He calls himself out in a way that makes sure we as readers understand that he is the lesser of the two figures in dialogue. He is the poor and needy. You see that in verse 1. And even though he says also in verse 1 that he is godly, what does he say very quickly? That he is the servant and in verse 3, he is the one that needs grace from the other. You see in verse 5 that uh, the poet has a bit of an evangelistic plea, I think. You see in verse 5 there, he's not just talking about his uh, relationship with God that is so precious. He's actually encouraging you and I to know this as well. He says in verse 5, God is good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. Isn't that hopeful? Poet wants to be known as someone who has a relationship with God. But not just that, the poet wants to be known as someone whose deepest source of wholeness comes out of that relationship. He knows he'll never be complete without the effort of God. This relationship with God is, to, is the key to all of his peace and happiness and hope and wholeness. Look what he says in verse 4. It appears as though only God can gladden his soul. Do you see that? Only God can preserve his life, going back from 4 to verse 2. Only God can save the servant of verse 1. The only valuable response in this poet's life is what? The answer of God. This reality is true uh, both in times of peace and in a day of trouble. Do you see there uh, in verse 7? A day of trouble. Is it odd to you that he doesn't define the trouble? And is it odd to you that he goes into verse 8, not defining the trouble there either? He makes us hold our breath between 7 and 14 before we see what that trouble is. No, the, the important thing that the poet wants us to see at the very beginning is that he is in relationship with God and God is the source of all of his wholeness. Now that's the first section. And that should strike our ears as very uh, lovely, beautiful, a, a delightful image of what it looks like to be a Christian person. But the poem isn't lopped off there as if this is the uh, only experience that we have in life from that relationship with God. The truth of the matter is, is that life is often very difficult, and we don't always uh, sense that God is the very source of our uh, gladness because we don't, well, we don't feel glad at all. That's the beginning of the poem. Look at the very end, beginning at verses 14, uh, going from 14 to 17. You see here, there's a really massive problem. It's almost like everything that he said in verses 1 and 7 can't exist if, if verse 14 is true. He's in a relationship with God. He knows that God is the source of his wholeness. But then verse 14, oh God, Insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. These men are arrogant, presumptuous. That's that word for insolent. And they've taken power, haven't they? They've risen up. They're not afraid. And they are uh, the kind of men who are known by their violence. That's that word, uh, ruthless. 
They don't mind breaking the law to bring about that which they want to bring about. What do they want to bring about? They want David dead. Now, if you had murderers chasing you down, would you open your prayer like this prayer? Would you open your prayer about the relationship that you have with God and how he is the source of the soul's gladness? You might, but you also might just dive in at verse 14. God, do you see these people? Now, more than one scholar actually uh, believes that the poet may be partly to blame for verse 14. He may have done something to offend these men. You see, in verse 15, David quotes Exodus 34, 6. Those are words of God to Moses. Now, these are words in which God reminds Moses of the kind of God that he is. He is the kind of God who, well, you, you see it there. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Why did Moses need to hear these words at this moment in Exodus 34? Well, Moses needed to hear these words because the people had sinned against God. And because they had sinned against God by worshiping the golden calf, God's, God's wrath uh, burned against them. And uh, God, it seems, is going to send them into the promised land without any protection at all. Go, do your own thing. And Moses, he's interceding for the people. He's pleading to God. And what does God say? Yes, those people are rebellious people, but God reminds Moses of his own character. Those people are rebellious. They seem to hate me. But the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, so some scholars, they look at uh, David quoting this particular verse, and they see in that that there's a possibility that David may have uh, stirred a hornet's nest, that David may have done something to uh, cause these people uh, to be filled with wrath uh, towards him. And David goes to uh, this particular point in the life of Moses because David knows that he's the wrongdoer here. He's the one who has uh, instilled these men to hate him and hunt him down to murder him. He did this, but he needs to hear what Moses heard, that God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, even against those who cry out to him but are rebellious. You see, uh, David, he has a problem you see in verse 16 that the problem has him uh, quite animated. Uh, look there at all of the cries of command that he, that he makes to God. Uh, turn to me, beginning in verse 16. Uh, be gracious to me. Uh, give your strength. Uh, save the son of your maidservant. All of these are, uh, are command verbs. David here is uh, desperate. That's the beginning of the psalm and the end of the psalm. And I want you to see that they don't match up very well. It troubles David. He is in a relationship with God, and he's wondering if that relationship is going to matter to the difficulties that he's experiencing in life. When people are hunting for him, can his heart still be gladdened? Does this relationship with God, this wholeness that comes from that relationship, is that the kind of thing that can only happen in good times or can it happen in trouble as well? And my, oh my, is David troubled. People 
hunting for him? Can you imagine how scattered his mind is? Can you imagine how afraid he is? And this, even though he's in communion with God. Again, what is this poem telling us? That God is willing and able to unite scattered minds and hearts. Will we ask him? Now, it may seem strange to conclude uh, at the middle of the psalm, but lyric poetry does this. That's why I explained how lyric poetry works. We return to the middle, verses 8 through 13, and there we find um, how David is to find uh, meaning in his trouble. I want you to look at verse 11. One scholar uh, says that uh, here in verse 11 is the penetrating climax of this poem. That's uh, Derek Kidner who says that. Uh, Listen to verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. Would you ponder that over this afternoon and into the new week? This is what David wants. He doesn't want to have the murderers completely done away with. Uh, The the center of his uh, request before God is that God would actually unite a heart that is scattered in a million different directions. During the pandemic, I felt this, maybe you did as well. I was struck by my own sense of distraction. I live by what's on my calendar. And during the pandemic, I could just sit and watch events slide right off my calendar. Did you see that as well? And during this season, I was struck uh, by my own uh, distractedness. I don't have these obligations. And now I'm distracted. It was during the pandemic I was uh, introduced to a book by uh, Dave Griffith Jones. I don't know if you recall this at all, but during the pandemic I uh, blogged about uh, this particular book. It's uh, a book called Escaping Escapism. Uh, Dave Griffith Jones is a uh, minister uh, in England. And in this book he dwells on how unique in the Bible Psalm 8611 is. Uh, This, of course, uh, he believes to be the center of the poet's request to God. Uh, Many scholars agree with that. Uh, But what Dave uh, Griffith Jones uh, highlights is that this uh, request that a heart be uh, united is outrageously rare in the Bible. This poet delights in being relationship with God, and he knows that God or that relationship is the source of his gladness, but he's struggling to keep his head on his shoulders given that his life is on the line. And what he is is distracted. He's torn apart. Look at what the poet asks God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. This request for walking in the Hebrew Bible is almost always a request for God to be with us during ordinary life. Teach me how to walk, how to make it day by day, hour by hour. That's how distracted this poet is. Ordinary life is hard. The problem is just a problem of walking. 
I wonder if you have felt that over the course of the pandemic, that all of a sudden, ordinary life, it just feels difficult. And then here's what the poet asks of God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart. Stitch it back together. How remarkably hopeless the poet seems. That's the problem. He looks deep down in his own heart and he sees that it's torn apart in a million different pieces. It's scattered. He can't concentrate. He can't focus. He can't discern from everything around him what's real and what's fake. He belongs to God, but he's radically distracted by things that have little to nothing to do with God. Uh, if that's anything like you, I think that you should be deeply encouraged to hear that God is willing and able to unite scattered minds and hearts. That's what David asks. And he asks because he knows that this is the character of God. He knows God. Look at this section. It's verses 8 through 13. And notice how this section is filled with statements about the character of God. The character of the poet almost disappears. The poet's character is cloaked in the character of God. God is unlike any other God. The poet says that twice in this middle section. All of the nations belong to him. All of the nations owe worship to him. He alone is great. He alone does wondrous things. His steadfast love is great. He is the very one who has delivered, has delivered, past tense, Past tense, present reality. He, is, he alone is the one who's delivered my soul from Sheol. God's character is everywhere. And you see how that's connected to the relationship that he has with this God. He has this relationship, a relationship that fills him, gladdens his heart. And right here in the middle is a reflection upon the one with whom he has a relationship. That is God and his great character. But nestled right in the middle of all of those statements of God's character is a tiny little glimmer of who the poet is. God, amidst all of your character, everything about who you are, here I am in the middle, and I'm the kind of person whose heart needs to be rejoined. That's me, God, right in the middle of your character. You see now how important those first seven verses are. This is the one whom he has a relationship with. Amidst your character, Heavenly Father, there's little me. And my heart is a heart that, in James chapter 1, is a heart that is doubting and double-minded. How about that for a picture of a Christian's heart? There's another picture like that in the New Testament in Romans 7. Or Paul says, I have done not what I want to do, but I've done what I hate. Boy, how's that for torn apart, scattered? If any of these statements around verse 11 about the character of God are true, maybe, maybe this is true as well. God has something to offer those whose hearts are scattered. 
And not only does the poet trust God to rejoin his heart, the poet trusts God to redirect that heart. Not to simply bring that heart together so that that heart would have some kind of inherent uh, wholeness, but God rejoins that heart so that that heart can be directed in the only direction that God has for that heart. The only legitimate direction for a heart that is properly joined together is to fear God. When we don't revere him, make him the center of our affection, we ultimately elevate other things. That's part of a distracted heart, isn't it? A heart that's distracted as thousands of little pieces of glass that are uh, laying out on the cold asphalt. And these little pieces of glass are looking for anything, anyone that will rejoin them together, but they haven't the power to do that. Instead, each individual tiny little bit of safety glass is looking for uh, its own individual desire. There's a million desires laying on the cold asphalt. Do you ever feel like that? Ever? This poet trusts God and his vast character to rejoin his heart and to redirect his heart such that that heart fears and reveres God alone. Distraction is living with a split heart, yearning for any kind of glue that makes it whole again. And God, he is a God who is able and willing to unite that heart and to point it in the only direction that guarantees that it stays united, the fear of the Lord. The relationship in verses 1 through 7 of this psalm are there to make you yearn for that kind of relationship. And verse 5 invites you into that kind of relationship. His love is strong enough and powerful enough for you despite all of your sins and all of your filth. And if you need any allurement beyond verses 1 through 7, look at this distracted poet in a relationship with God, going to that God to ask that God to do something that is beyond his own power, to reach deep into his heart and to unite it together. Is that alluring to you at all? He's willing and able to deal with our distractions. And he has the power to unite that heart. Now, not only must you ask him, but the Psalms are a collection of, uh, of, uh, of, so- of poems that are meant for our everyday worship, regular worship. Not only is the poet uh, admonishing us to ask God to do something that seems uh, remarkable, he's asking us to do that over and over and over and over again. And as your pastor, I'm inviting you to do that as well. Do you feel distracted? He has the power to unite that heart. How will you ever grow bored in asking him to unite that heart? Might he unite and then it feels distracted and and torn apart again? Ask him again. This is what it means to fear God, to reverence him. Ask and ask and ask. He's willing and he's able. Now, you feel this tenuously now for sure. But Jesus will come again. Jesus will come again. And this asking and asking, having it united and then broken apart over and over again, well, that that won't even register in your consciousness. He will come again. And that heart 
that heart will never, never be torn apart again. He has come, and he will come again. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we ask you this. Would you unite our hearts? Would you stitch them together with spiritual and divine thread? And would you direct those hearts that they would love you afresh, fear you afresh? Oh, Holy Father, rejoin our hearts and redirect our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.